Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of James. If, if perchance you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take, take a look around under the chairs, and somewhere you'll find one, and I uh, ask you to turn along with us to the book of James, chapter 3, as I read uh, from God's Word the first 12 verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond. Yield fresh water. Occasionally, a visitor, after at the conclusion of, of worship, a visitor will approach me and ask me where I'm from. Well, as my mother would say, being the wee cheeky bism that I am, I usually respond by saying, Glen Rose, born and raised. And that evokes a quizzical, if not downright confused, look. Why? Because they've picked up on an accent. Some of you look startled. You didn't realize I had an accent. They've picked up on an accent. And they have quickly identified that I'm not from around these here parts, but from somewhere, somewhere else. And uh, they identify the accent with a people's group, uh, with a country, with a place, just with something else. I was reflecting on that fact this past week. I'm okay with it. But uh, I was reflecting on it, and in the context of James 3, I began pondering a, a significant question, a probing question. As Christians, do we speak with an accent? Now, that is a good question. As a believer, a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do I speak with a distinct accent? Does the world pick up on the fact quickly that I'm not from around here? Does it register with them? That something is different, they might not be able to quite put their finger on it, but they know something is up, something is different. As a Christian, do I speak with an accent? Do I speak in a way that is different? Do I speak in a way that actually sounds like Christ? That's the question. 
And I pray by God's Spirit we will all have an answer to that question by the time we are finished here this morning. The past couple of Sundays we've been in James 2, and we have heard James clearly stress, repeatedly emphasize that works are the demonstrable evidence of saving faith. That has been his message. Oh, I I pray we're so clear on this. As Christians, those of us who are Christians, we know that Christ is everything. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord Jesus is absolutely everything. He is the apple of his Father's eye. He is the object of his Father's eternal delight. And the Word of God, the Son of God, became a man, body and soul. And he became a man with a mission. A man with a a very distinct, clearly defined goal before him. uh, To live the life that we could not live. To live perfectly. To obey God with every fiber of his being. To please God with everything he did. Everything he thought. And yes, everything he said. And having done that, to, uh, to die upon the old rugged cross and to die there as a penalty on behalf of sinners, taking our sin to himself and the judgment righteously due and rightly due to us, taking that judgment upon himself and paying that penalty in full. And he has ascended on high victoriously. And it is simply wonderful. It is sublime. God now offers to sinners Jesus Christ. He offers his son to rebels. He offers his beloved son to those who by nature hate him and downright despise him. He offers the Lamb of God, the eternal Lamb of God, to those who are in love with themselves and by nature really want nothing to do with him. Ah. It's a wonderful message. It is the gospel message. And by faith, we come to the Lord Jesus. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We we take him and say, yes, 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 I get it. Yes. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm banking in him. I'm resting in him. And through faith, we become one with him. And because we're one with him, we now have his name. He's Christ, we're Christians. And because we're one with him, everything he bought by his perfect life and his substitutionary death, everything he bought, everything he secured, everything he purchased, it's ours. We get it all. We're not necessarily enjoying all of it yet, but it is ours by right. We are now heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And the inheritance is ours, and we're simply waiting for it. We've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and we understand now, looking back, that that our salvation did not, does not rest on us. We, We fully comprehend this is a gift of grace. This is a gift, an expression of mercy. This is God bestowing upon us something we do not deserve. As a matter of fact, it is God bestowing upon us the opposite of what we do deserve. We're clear on this, aren't we? And we're thrilled with this. This is the gospel. And now we realize, well, I believe in the Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells me that believing in the Lord Jesus, I now possess eternal life. Guess what, my friend? That eternal life is not restricted to the future. That's life now. And James' point is what? That where there is life, there is fruit. That's all James is saying. That is all he is saying. That that fruit, those works, become the demonstrable evidence of saving faith. You can work through it backwards. If there is no fruit, it can only be because there is no life. And if there is no life, that can only be because there is no union with Christ, who is life. 
if there is no union with Christ who is life, that can only mean what? There is no real, true, saving faith. And anyone in that condition who professes to have faith, as James makes clear, no, that person only has head belief. Can that kind of faith save you, is what he asks toward the end of chapter 2. Can that kind of faith save you? Mere head belief, mere intellectual assent to the truth without ever producing fruit, life, a result of life in Christ. Can that faith save you? And his answer was clearly what? No, it can't because it isn't real faith. That's his message. Now, I, I trust you've been asking at least one question. If you've been here the past couple of Sundays, at least one question. You may, maybe there have been multiple questions running through that head of yours, and that's fine. But I'm going to hazard a guess that for some of us, a, a nagging question in the back of our minds has been this. Okay, you keep using that word, works. And sometimes you mix it up a little. That's fine, a little variety. You use the word fruit. What are we talking about? What works? What fruit? Uh, he, he keeps talking about works, works, works. Fruit, works as the fruit of life. Works as the fruit of life. Okay, I get it. I, I understand clearly now. I, I trust in the Lord Jesus. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I know it is not of works. My works have nothing to do with it. All James is saying is that when I believe in the Lord Jesus, I come into union with him who is life. I come alive. Therefore, where there is life, there is fruit. Works. What works? I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've been asking that question. I'm going to assume some of you have. Those of you who haven't, you now are. Hey, yeah, that is a good question. What works? You already know the answer. He already told us. He told us back in the first chapter toward the end. And you'll remember in that chapter, he's celebrating the fact that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the greatest gift of all is the fact that this God has caused his people, Christians, to be born again by the word of truth. And he is now growing them by the word of truth. And where there is growth, there is fruit. And look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Three works. Did you pick up on them? Three pieces of fruit. Number one, it's right there in the 26th verse, a bridled tongue. That's the first one. Second one brings us into the 27th verse, a compassionate heart. Still in the 27th verse, an unstained life. Did you get it? Three pieces of fruit. It's not an exhaustive list. Don't misunderstand. There are plenty of other types of fruit, pieces of fruit in the garden, so to speak. But these are the three that James has honed in on and that he's going to pick up in chapter 3 and run with almost through to the end of the epistle. A bridal tongue, piece of fruit number one. Yes, secondly, a compassionate heart. And the third piece of fruit, an unstained life. When you then jump into chapter 2 and you come to verse 14, you can actually substitute those three expressions for the word works. Verse 14, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have a bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, or an unstained life? Ooh, now it's coming to life, isn't it? You can do the same thing in the 26th verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from a bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life is dead. Those are the works that he primarily has in view. And as I just hinted at, 
stated it moments ago, having made it through chapter 2, especially the last half of it, which is really the climax of the epistle. As he works his way home to his conclusion, he goes back full circle to those three pieces of fruit, and he revisits them from different angles. And he comes to the first in our text, doesn't he? A bridled tongue. He addresses this subject in full here in the third chapter. He's mentioned it back in chapter, two, chapter 1. It is there in chapter 2 as well. He's going to come back to it in chapter 4 briefly. He's even going to come back to it in the fifth chapter. A bridal tongue, a bridal tongue, a bridal tongue. The man will not let it go. He is persistent if he is anything. A bridled tongue, piece of fruit, number one. Why? Why is he hot and bothered about this? He has himself all worked up into a frenzy. Why does he keep going back to it? And now why does he wax eloquent in these 12 verses of the third chapter and, to, and go into so much detail concerning the tongue? I think the answer is rather simple. I believe the author of this epistle, James, is a half-brother of Jesus. I submit to you that James learned two lessons well from his half-brother Jesus. He learned two lessons very well. The first is this. He learned, in the words of Matthew 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He had learned that. And that is why he spends so much time, devotes so much energy to this subject in his epistle. He is convinced, he has learned it, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is a direct correlation between the condition of my heart and what comes out of my mouth. I try to go to the doctor once a year for my checkup and um, measures my weight and uh, draws a little blood, sends it to the lab, right? You've been there, checks it. Blood pressure, always. And also, without fail, and uh, he's been doing this as long as I can remember, stick out your tongue. Sure. Never really thought much about it till the last couple weeks. It's bizarre, really. Stick out your tongue. I made a mistake this past week. You know what it was? I Googled it. I've been staring at my tongue in the mirror ever since, and I have self-diagnosed at least 13 ailments according to my tongue. But apparently, I was not aware of this. The tongue is an open book for a doctor. An open book. Uh, what he can diagnose or she can diagnose on the basis of the condition of the tongue is remarkable. Uh, the tongue indicates, the tongue shows because it is directly related to our physical health. That is precisely James' point. But he's not talking about physical health. He is talking about, about what? Spiritual health. He's not talking about the physical organs stuck in there. He is talking about what comes out of the mouth, the tongue, the lips, words. And he firmly grasps, as the Lord Jesus himself taught it on more than one occasion, that whatever comes out, Whatever is said, whatever is stated, uh, it reveals the health, either for good or for bad, of the heart. So what does that say? You, you do the math yourself. What does it mean when our words are harsh and dismissive? Come on now. What does it mean in the light of Scripture? It means all is not well. There is a problem. The problem is not the words. Although, yes, to a certain degree, they must be addressed. The words are simply revealing a problem within, deep within. What does it say when my words are careless and thoughtless? What does it say when my words are malicious and slanderous? What does it indicate when my speech is sarcastic and negative? 
Are my words full of jealousy and bitterness? If so, what does it say? Do we gossip? Do we murmur? Do we complain? Do we criticize? Do we bicker? Do our words cut and bite? This is not rocket science, friends. If the answer to the question is yes, what does it say? What is being revealed? Stick out your tongue, says James. And I'll tell you what it says. As the Lord Jesus himself taught, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do people feel like they're trying to hold a porcupine with their bare hands whenever they're around us? That's a dreadful condition to be in. People afraid to be around us. Just steer clear of him or her. Or certainly don't raise this or this subject or get on the wrong side. Because it will be like trying to pick up a porcupine with your bare hands. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James learned that lesson well. Second lesson he learned from the Lord Jesus is this. Still in Matthew 12, he learned that on the day of judgment, people will give an account. This is simply terrifying. Will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I heard a preacher state it a long, long time ago. I have never forgotten it cognitively, but I have forgotten it in practice far more than I care to admit. He stated there are two things that constantly, constantly amaze me. Two things that constantly floor me. I was expecting something profound. You know what he said? This. Two things that constantly amaze me. Number one. The number of warnings in the Bible against gossiping, murmuring, complaining, bickering, backbiting. And number two, the number of professing Christians who pay no attention. Floors me constantly that as you read the Bible and just collect systematic theology, just collect all it has to say about our speech, our words, our tongues, and warning upon warning upon warning upon warning. And the sheer volume number of us who pay no attention to those warnings. Those were two things that I do not doubt for a moment were in the forefront of James' mind as he wrote this epistle. And it is why he identifies the bridal tongue as fruit number one way back in the first chapter it's why he comes back to it in every subsequent chapter, and it's why in our specific chapter, the third, he feels compelled to go into such detail. I want to skip over the first two verses. I so desperately want to skip over the first two verses. They strike far too close to home. But what can I do? I can try to run and hide, but I can't run and hide. There they are, black and white, the Word of God. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. I wish I understood something of that. I had understood something of that 20, 25 years ago when I first began to preach. I entered and stood behind the pulpit without ever giving it a moment's thought. Ah, sure. It'll be fine. It'll be great. And uh, who, who doesn't want to preach? Who doesn't want to stand up in front of people and um, give them the impression that you think you actually know something? Who doesn't, want, who doesn't want to do that? It's very appealing to the ego. It most certainly is. Without any thought about it, without knees knocking, fear or trembling. And, um, oh, I praise God, none of those sermons are available on the internet. 
I am so thankful I was born in the age I was and the thing, way things have worked out the way they have because you just have to take my word for it. It was pretty horrendous, pretty horrendous. Um, if you ask me today, and, and people do ask me occasionally, do you get nervous uh, standing up and speaking in front of people? I don't. I get nervous whenever I read this verse. This verse simply terrifies me terrifies me. Afraid of people, afraid of standing up in front of you. You're the least of my worries, friends. You really are. You are the least of my worries. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, scrutiny, scrutiny of life and of doctrine. Note the command. It's pretty simple. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. If you're an aspiring preacher, an aspiring teacher, I beg you, think twice. If there's something else you can do, do it. Did you just hear what I said? If there's something else you can do, do it. But if the Lord will not let you go, then that's a calling. That's a calling to ministry. And if your approach to teaching and preaching is cavalier, well, yeah, I want to do that. That's cool. My friend, no, wait, 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 wait. Do not be in a hurry to enter into the pulpit. Do not be in a hurry to get up behind the lectern. Do not be in a hurry to open this book and say, Thus saith the Lord. Um, A little fear. A little trepidation. That is the command. The reason? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And here's an interesting question. Don't press it too far, but think it through. What is the most dangerous job in the world? According to this verse. What is the most dangerous, hazardous job in the world? It is teaching. It is teaching. Because teaching catches God's special attention. That someone would dare place himself in a position where he can influence people for good or for bad. I mean, the reality in James' day, you're looking at people with a 10 to 15% you know, literacy rate, 10 to 15% literacy rate. What does that mean then for the public teacher of the word? He is unbelievably influential. We've come a long way from then, but yet the truth, it still rings true. It still holds true, does it not? That with teaching, with the teaching ministry comes a tremendous a tremendous potential for good or for evil because of the influence exerted. You see, James presents the problem. He tells us in verse 2, here's the problem. We all stumble in many ways. He puts himself in that. I'm glad he does. I'm relieved. He acknowledges, I've got this problem. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. None of us are perfect. A perfect man is able to bridle his tongue, bridle his whole body. But you know, we're stammering in our words. We sin in our words, unable to bridle our tongues as we ought. And because that is the case, and because God is watching, he's going to judge us with greater strictness. Therefore, do not take the responsibility of teacher upon you so flippantly. Don't rush into it, brothers. But understand that on the day of judgment, judgment will be far more severe for you. Far more severe. The scrutiny will be unbearable. And the strictness that will accompany that judgment ought to terrify us. What's the remedy? What's the remedy? James doesn't get into it. He does hint at it in his epistle when you look at it in its entirety. What's the remedy? I was thinking through this Wednesday night. I'm going to put him on the spot. We had David George's up here preaching. We had maybe a couple dozen kids, 8 to 15 years of age. There they were, and David George's was preaching. I was thinking, there he goes. There he goes. Fine job. There he was, right? The two houses. The two rocks, the foolish man, the wise man. There you are, gospel-oriented. As David does something like that, as I do something like this, as our Sunday school teachers, and we're unbelievably thankful for you here at Grace Community Church, week after week, there you are with those young hearts and the Word of God and your lesson and everything else that goes along with it. Those of you meeting, you know, in those smaller groups of twos, threes, and fours, and you're opening up God's word, and you're daring to say something, well, I think this is the interpretation. 
This is what it says. This is what it means. Thus saith the Lord. As you dare to say that in our care groups, as we look to God's word and we seek to expound it in the one-on-one counseling sessions, as we try to bring people by God's help and God's grace to align their lives and their thinking and their impulses and their desires with the word of God. What's the solution? What's the answer? I believe it's simply this, these verses. We must remember God is watching. It is, I think it is that straightforward. I think it is that simple. We must always remember God is watching. Uh, an unpleasant memory was my ninth grade French class. And uh, my teacher in particular, although I was no peach, that's for sure. And um, she was a dreadful teacher, though. She really was. Uh, and there's, no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was the general consensus, even of the students who were really into French in the ninth grade. Uh, she had a very laissez-faire, set-back, just-let-it-go attitude to the class and the, to each his own way, and was not really engaged, not really interested. I think it was simply a paycheck. Once a year, what happens? The principal shows up. And he sits in the back of the class, teacher evaluation. What you're going to get from 30 minutes out of a year, brother, you're not doing your job either. But for that, there he is. Once a year, 30 minutes, he's going to evaluate this teacher. When he showed up and sat in the back, she was a transformed woman. I mean, the, all of a sudden, the engagement and the interaction and the learning methodology and techniques, she'd gone back, obviously, to her teacher's college textbooks. She'd obviously done her research. She'd come up with all these things and ways of learning and making French engaging. Why? Because the principal was sitting in the back evaluating. Now, obviously, she had a greater problem than one we can address and get into now. But think of it by way of application. When we teach, I mean, you can, you can, you can, you know, friend, even if you're not a teacher, you can expand the application. When we serve, when we minister, but obviously in the context, primarily, yes, when we teach, whatever the situation or context, oh, to be mindful of this truth, God is watching. And you want to know something? He's really only interested in one thing. That's a bit of a relief, isn't it? He's really only interested in one thing, faithfulness, faithfulness. Being faithful with this book and seeking to understand it, being faithful in orienting our lives according to it, and being faithful in seeking to convey the truth and reality of his word to others. And so James has that warning. There it is. It's his preface, if you like, to the first 12 verses. And it leads him then into this great exposition of the tongue. And it's very simple. You're thinking to yourself, oh no, we've got 10 verses still to go. No, no, just just relax. These aren't complex. These aren't difficult. Uh, James, is, he's, he's, just, he's, a, he's a master at explaining things. And all he does is he just throws out Word picture after word picture after word picture. Illustration after illustration after illustration. And he just wants to get across four facts about the tongue. That's it. Here they are, quickly. Fact number one, the tongue is powerful. It's powerful. Oh, it's powerful. Verses three, four, and five. A couple of illustrations. We direct a horse. All you horse riders, right? You know it. We direct a horse. Oh, the power of that animal. I mean, it could crush you if it wanted to. We direct a horse with a small bit. We direct a great ship with a small rudder. These small things control enormous, powerful objects, wielding influence out of all proportion to their size. James' point is what? The tongue is exactly the same. That's all I'm saying powerful. It's a small, itty-bitty little thing. It's a small member, but it boasts of great things. Very powerful. Second fact I want you to get is this. It's dangerous. Verses five and six. And basically, James states five things, five word pictures, illustrations to get across to us. Look, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Number one, it is a fire, he says at the end of verse five. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
and the tongue is a fire. And so you think of those forest fires that rage here in the summer. Or sometimes you hear them, don't you, out in California or the prairies as you move north, even up into Canada. And usually, what is it that sets off those fires? Sometimes it's something quite, you know, great, like a, a strike of lightning or something like that. But other times, it's just a carelessly discarded cigarette or match or something like this, a little spark. It's all it takes. And the blaze, the resulting blaze, and all that is consumed in its path of forests and vegetation and animals and homes and even human lives, it is a fire. It is dangerous. He says, secondly, it's a world of unrighteousness, a world of unrighteousness. It will descend into malice without thinking, deceit, gossip, bitterness, backbiting, and murmuring. It will wreak havoc and create chaos. It harasses, it belittles, it demolishes. Mere word. It will destroy reputations, friendships, families, ministries, and yes, churches. The third point he makes is this. The tongue is set, we're into verse 6, set among our members, staining the whole body. So a small spot of coffee on your dress. Well, it's ruined. The whole thing needs to be washed. Small drop of ink on our shirt or tie. It's, it ruins the shirt. One unguarded word or comment can ruin Everything, it stains the whole body. Fourth remark, it sets on fire the entire course of life, creates a blaze that burns out of control. And the final remark, very telling, right there at the end of verse six, it itself, that is the tongue, is set on fire by hell. Yes, he's referring to that valley, that valley to the south, of the city of Jerusalem that was the city's dump where there burned a fire by day and by night. And James' point is simply this, the tongue and the destructive words, the dangerous words that come from the tongue, they arise from hell itself. Third fact he wants us to get is this, the tongue is uncontrollable. Verses 7 and 8. And again, note the illustrations. We're able to tame wild animals for every kind of beast and bird. Reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. I'm not sure we should tame them, but we can. We can tame the orca to perform little cute tricks, can't we? We can tame the mighty elephants and other animals, bears, lions. We can tame them all. What's James' point? We can do that, verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. You can't cage it. You can't contain it. You can't control it. Why? Two reasons. It is a restless evil. Restless. It just, it, it, it is eager. It wants to strike and express itself because it is a manifestation of what lurks within. Why? He gives a second reason. It's full of deadly poison. It's like a viper. It's like a snake. It's like a rattlesnake, right? Um, it is poisonous by nature. That's James' point. The tongue is full of deadly poison, poisonous by nature. It gives us a fourth fact concerning the tongue. It is inconsistent. Verses 9 through 12. With it, with our words, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. There we are. We are just doing that a few moments ago as we sang together and prayed together and praised God together. And with it, we walk out the door, go home, and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Completely inconsistent. And he goes on to show us by way of illustration how inconsistent this is. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. You're committing intellectual suicide is his point. This makes no sense. Do you not understand this makes no sense? And he drives it home in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Does it? It can't. 
a spring, it's either fresh water or it's salt water. Can a fig tree, verse 12, my brothers, bear olives? It can't. Olives are contrary to the nature of a fig tree. Or can a grapevine produce figs? Definitely not. A grapevine produces grapes. It can't produce something that is completely contradictory and consistent with its own nature. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What is his point in the context of all that he has said in chapter 2? And back into chapter 1. To believe in the Lord Jesus is to be one with Him. Union with Him. To be in union with Him is to come alive. To come alive is to live his life by faith. To live his life by faith is to be conformed to his image. To be conformed to his image is seen primarily in righteousness and goodness. And righteousness and goodness will be evident in what? A bridled tongue. Work backwards if the tongue is not bridled. And it's wreaking havoc. And again, going back to the illustration, people are afraid to be around us because it's like holding a porcupine. That is completely inconsistent. It just cannot be. It ought not to be so because it cannot be so. That kind of fruit is completely inconsistent with the life that is in Christ Jesus. That is his point. Where there is life, there is fruit. That fruit will be seen in a bridal tongue. Not perfection, certainly not. Oh, but I dare say there will be improvement. There will be progress. There will be a battle waged in this regard and a desire to honor Christ with all that comes out of our mouths. Oh, those are the four facts he wants us to get. It is powerful. It is dangerous. It is uncontrollable. And it is consistent. I like obvious questions. The obvious question is what? What hope is there for me? Really? And I might add to that, what hope is there for you? A hope is found back in chapter 2, very first verse. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's the answer. There's the solution. There's the hope. We hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And as I hold the faith in my Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, I remember four great truths. Here they are. Number one, Christ atones us. He atones for us. All of my sins. And at the top of the pile, because it's where we're at right now in the Word of God, at the top of the pile stand the sins of of my tongue, and I will publicly confess as I look back on my life, there are some doozies. Oh, there are some doozies. I just shudder as I think of some of the things I have said in the past. Carelessness, thoughtlessness, the biting and the cutting and the cynicism and the criticism. And there they stand, the heap, my multitude of sins. Oh, but I hold fast to my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember that Christ atones for sins, including the sins of the tongue. That at Calvary's cross, all of it, the whole stinking, reeking mess of it all, is reckoned to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he bears the penalty for my sins and the sins of my tongue in full. I remember, secondly, that he humbles me. As I hold the faith in my Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he humbles me. And he humbles me as I read his word, as I read the first 12 verses, I'm humbled. I want to run and hide, to be quite frank. I'll run and hide. And there is this humbling effect. And it shouldn't surprise us because Paul states it clearly back in Romans 3, doesn't he? Back in Romans 3, he tells us that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Do you know that's one of the functions of God's word? And it's one of the functions of the proclamation of the law and the gospel. The proclamation of God's word. It is so that our mouths might be stopped, that we might be humbled. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on that verse from Romans 3, wrote the following. When you realize what the law is truly saying to you, you are rendered speechless. 
hear this, he adds, you are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. Oh, think about that one later. What does he mean by that? You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. I have finally shut up in the presence of God because I see what I really am before the word. I see who I really am before the law, and I do not like it because it is not a pretty picture. And there are no more excuses. There's no more trying to explain it away or justify it away or tidy it up or come at it from some different angle or compare myself to others. I know what I am in the sight of a holy God, and I am speechless. Oh, as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it humbles us. Thirdly, it changes us. That as we reflect upon who we are and what we now are in the Lord Jesus, as we saw it in the adult Sunday school class earlier this morning, what were those three terms? That in Christ we are called by God. In Christ we are beloved by God. In Christ we are kept by God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Oh, and as I reflect on who I am, God's mercy toward me in Christ Jesus. Oh, this gospel humbles the proud heart. And it breaks the stubborn heart. And it produces meekness. Produces kindness. It produces gentleness. It produces poverty of spirit. And that meekness and kindness and poverty of spirit is seen where? Foremost, in my words. Fourthly, as I reflect on that great truth, again, James 2.1, I'm holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I find that Christ commands me. He commands me. Commands me to seek a pure heart. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Do you know what that means? It means we criticize because we're envious. For no other reason, my friend. If you're a critical person, it's because you're envious. That's it, period. We slander because we're proud. That's it. It is that simple. We attack because we're bitter. We snap because we're impatient. We murmur because we're discontent. Do you want me to go on and on? I could go on and on and on. It is all a reflection of what's going on inside. And Christ commands us as as his people, seek a pure heart. Commands us, guard your speech. Psalm 31, 9, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Heard a preacher say this a long time ago. Muzzles would alleviate most of the problems among Christians. Muzzles. Did Did you get that? Muzzles would alleviate most of the problems among Christians. Control of the tongue. Restraining our words. Just speaking itself. And when we do speak, ensuring that it is seasoned with salt. Oh, he commands us, glorify God. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your own mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to all who hear. That's a great question to ask yourself. Before this comes out of my mouth, will it give grace to those who hear? If the answer is no, you might want to think twice about saying what you're about to say. Will it be edifying and glorifying to God? He commands us. You're going to like this one. Talk less. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Wisdom from long ago. I think it might have been my father. You will rarely regret not saying enough. You will rarely regret not saying enough. You will almost always regret saying too much. So talk less. He commands us, immerse yourself in God's language. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because as we digest God's word, it begins to form our thoughts and affections and attitudes. 
and words in a wonderful way. Lastly, he commands us, seek help where it is found. Set a guard, O Lord, Psalm 141, set a guard. Here's a prayer, make it your own. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I think I've said enough. I've said enough. Do you remember the question I began with? It's a long time ago now. Do you have an accent? Right? As a Christian, do you speak with an accent? If not, you should. And there's plenty in this text by God's grace and by God's spirit that we must be applying ourselves to as we seek to glorify him, not in deed alone, but in word. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you even for this difficult text. It is, admittedly, penetrating and prone to make us feel very uncomfortable. Father, that is a good thing. It is a good thing to be reminded of who we are, shown what we are in your sight. To stay there is a bad thing. We pray that we would come and seek comfort and solace in the shadow of the cross and realize that Christ is a great and mighty Savior and that he has atoned for all our sins. May we remember that the magnitude of your mercy hides and covers and bears away the multitude of our iniquities. And we do ask our Father that as we've pondered this text, that in a very meaningful and real way, your kingdom would come among us, that your will would be done within us, and that truly we would glorify you in life, in word, and in deed. We ask it in Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.